Thank you, Tim. We continue our series out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was written during the time and describes a time when the nation of Israel was under siege and under a lot of attack and really collapsing as a nation and indeed did eventually collapse. And so we're looking here at this first part of this series at, at, at the things that Israel was engaged in, its various uh, sins and transgressions and idolatries uh, that brought it to a place of collapse. And today we're going to look at uh, the role of, of lies and conspiracies in the nation of Israel and how they led to its collapse. Uh, by now, most of us are familiar with uh, Edgar Welch four years ago, uh, believing what we now know to be the QAnon conspiracy, um, went into a Washington, D.C. Um, pizza restaurant, Comet Ping Pong Pizza, and uh, assaulted, I mean, shots, shot, <laughs> fired shots from his assault rifle in the restaurant and broke into uh, what he thought was going to be a door that led to an underground sex dungeon, but which turned out to be a simple broom closet. And so we see here in this example, and there are a lot of other conspiracies going on, uh, as we all know, but we see here in this example where somebody believing something, a conspiracy, um, in that belief uh, acted in what seemed to be, you know, very sincere uh, interest and, and motivation to help what he believed to be uh, victims of a, of a sex ring that was being run by prominent Democrats. And so we see here that, that he was highly affected by this conspiracy. Now, a conspiracy, uh, a real conspiracy, is where a small group of people gather together um, and engage in plans that are harmful to the public but beneficial to themselves. A conspiracy theory um, is a belief that a conspiracy is going on, but indeed hasn't been proven. So we see that, that these kinds of things, I think certainly over the last political cycle that we've been engaged in, uh, we've seen where lies and conspiracies really haven't been a, a benefit or a good to the national discourse. And these same types of things were happening in the nation of Israel. So I, what I, what I want to do today is look at what was going on in Israel uh, and what is going on in America specifically to how to what is going on that affects or I think is is uh, very capable of affecting the church and has affected the church and then look at what what would Christ call us to do in these types of moments and so Ezekiel in chapter 13 addresses two groups of people the first group he calls uh, the prophets of Israel and the second group he calls the daughters of Israel and so I want to look at these prophets first. So the prophets of Israel were a formal group. You see them throughout um, the scriptures in the, the, uh, the Old Testament, and they were a formal group. And so if you can remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha, they were part of the, the group or the school of prophets of Israel at that time. Um, so a lot of times the prophets did indeed represent God and, and accurately 
uh, called Israel back to his word and spoke and warned people using the word of God. But there were oftentimes uh, these, these prophets would not speak on behalf of God. They would not accurately communicate the word of God. They wouldn't call Israel back to the word of God. And they were communicating things to the nation that they said were the word of God, but indeed were not. And so they used God's name and they used his word uh, for a, a basis of authority, but in fact were not speaking the words of God and God was not telling them to speak. And so they were hijacking the name and the word of God for their own personal use. And God said that you are, you're motivated not by me, but by your own hearts and by your own spirits, by their own passions, by their own idolatries, by their own desires. And he compared them to, to jackals uh, that lived amongst a um, destroyed city, scavenging for what they could um, for, their own, for their own benefit. He said that these prophets were called, okay, the role of the prophets were to, to strengthen and defend the nation of Israel against spiritual attack, but they played the very opposite role. They were actually attacking and actually weakening Israel's defenses. And they were doing this through, they would say they would have visions, um, but they were not visions from God. Uh, they would say that they could see and tell the future, but God wasn't giving them any insight in regard to the future. So they were guilty of what the Old Testament calls uh, divination, which is a, a form of, of sorcery and, and, and practicing magic. And they actually expected God to fulfill their words. They expected God to fulfill their words. They also spoke directly against what God had told them. So in the midst of the experience of judgment, so people were being taken captive and carted off to Babylon. Uh, Babylon had placed a puppet king in place of the true king. And, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other biblical prophets, prophets that were sincere and true, were saying, um, repent for judgment is coming. And these false prophets were saying, no, 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 no. We're going to experience peace we're going to get it all come back to the, to the nation. The kingship is going to be restored. Everything is going to be okay. But it wasn't true. This continued to bring further hardship to the, to the nation of Israel. Rather than, peach, excuse me, rather than preaching repentance in fear of God and his judgment, which would have been consistent with his word, they preached peace. They preached what the people wanted to hear. And Israel, excuse me, Ezekiel used um, this metaphor of a wall. And so the wall was the nation of Israel, and it was crumbling. Its stones were broken. Its mortar was coming out. It was a weak wall, incapable of defending them against anything. Well, rather than the prophets coming along and strengthening the wall by accurately communicating the word of God and warning Israel to repent, they literally plastered over the wall and then painted it. So they just made it look better, which was deceitful because when judgment came, the wall was completely broken down, down to its foundations. See, they, they dismissed the problem 
They hid what was really going on. They made it look like it was better than it was. And when the moment of judgment came, it didn't do the job. And the scriptures say that they did it all for selfish gain, to please the people, to avoid conflict, to maintain their financial support. The second group of people are similar in their motivations and in some of their their activities. They're called the Daughters of Israel. Now, there's no uh, formal group known as the Daughters of Israel. There were women prophets, and they were part of the school of prophets. Uh, But they, too, this this group of women, they used God's name, and they used God's word. They did not represent God. They did not accurately reflect his words, but instead spoke from their own hearts and spirits, again, like the, the false prophets. But instead of, instead of just preaching a false word, what they did is engaged in the creation of, of bracelets and head ornaments that were somehow linked to demonic worship and, and magic. Now, it, the text isn't clear on whether these, these bracelets and these, these head ornaments were for protection or if they were for controlling others and cursing others. There's history of both in the practice of magic in in this ancient area. Uh, But regardless, they were using magic to manipulate and control God's people. And they were also guilty of divination, which again is is telling the future, saying what's going to happen uh, through the use of mediums and spirits uh, against God. And the scriptures say that they attracted the souls of Israel and led the souls of Israel to death. Now, we don't know if it was like they were actually a working magic to kill people or if they were just because of their allure drawing people into some sort of hope uh, with their magic trinkets, with something that the people could hold on to, something the people could, could see, something the people could believe that was going to bring them good. And so this led them into a place of apathy, uh, did not lead them into a place of repentance. And again, these, these um, literally witches were guiding Israel to, to think that they were in a place of peace and that everything was going to be okay when in fact judgment was, was impending. And, it, and Ezekiel said that, these, that this uh, group of witches disheartened the righteous of Israel, which means that they continued to encourage transgression. Because they weren't calling the people to repentance, they were encouraging ongoing sin, they were encouraging ongoing demon worship and idolatry, they were encouraging ongoing uh, the slaughter and the sacrifice of children to these false gods. And so, and, and then obviously this would have been in refutation against the people that were preaching and living righteously. And so you had the righteous within the nation of Israel increasingly marginalized and disheartened and, and withdrawing in their feelings of isolation. So they were... And at times, you can see this throughout the books of Kings, you can see that these these false prophets and these witches, um, they were blaming the righteous and blaming the truth-tellers for what was happening to the nation. And again, their motivations were similar to that of the false prophets. They literally were doing it so that they could support themselves financially, and the text says so that they could 
so they could feed themselves. And so you had the presence of these, of these groups within Israel communicating lies, pretending to act on the benefit of the nation, uh, using the authority of God and his word to manipulate the people, to, to put them into a place of, of apathy instead of repentance, which kept them under, this, under the judgment of God who was judging them for their ongoing sins and idolatry and child sacrifice and transgressions against him and against people. So what does this have to do with us today? What does this have to do with us today? Well, I'm, no way am I going to make an attempt to examine all of the various lies and conspiracies that are circling around us uh, at this time. We need to be mindful of them. We need to be mindful of what we are believing is actually true. Conspiracies easily play on our fears because they're usually communicating something about a perceived enemy that's doing something against us. And so they play on our fears. There's no truth behind them because they're, they're, they're conspiracy theories. Now, occasionally conspiracies uh, are um, exposed, um, but until it's exposed, it's just a theory with no truth behind it. And, and if you followed Lawrence's advice from a few weeks ago, which we did as a family, we watched that show, The uh, Social Dilemma, uh, that it is an amazing story and narration of what our devices and the companies behind these devices and the advertisers behind these devices, how they play on our fears and, and continue to feed and draw us and manipulate us into believing more and more of these things that in a, in, in a large ways, aren't even true. They manipulate and exacerbate our, our worst fears, our worst habits, and our worst impulses. But I'm not going to go down that road anyway. Any, <laughs> there's just too much to explore there. Maybe it, you know, it needs its own series. But I, do, I, I do want to draw out um, and examine a growing movement in our culture. Now, we're all aware of a growing movement of activism that's happening in our culture and really globally that is acting on behalf of the historically oppressed people, people of color, women, non-heterosexuals, immigrants, indigenous peoples, the poor, and others. There are a lot of people that fall into this group of minority peoples that have been oppressed by majorities. I want to point out, it is a good thing, it is a very good thing that historical evils are being exposed and coming to light. And it is a very good thing that we are working to ensure equality of opportunity, okay, equality of opportunity for everyone in our world. Equality of opportunity is our goal. Equality of outcomes is impossible, but equality of opportunity is what we should be fighting for. And the historical, historical reality of the mistreatment and oppression of, minorities, of minority peoples in our nation and around the world uh, cannot be denied. If we deny these things, we are like the false prophets that saw a crumbling wall 
and said, ah, it doesn't exist, it's fine, plastered over it, and then just painted it. These are things that we need to see as truths and make an effort to fix and repair what has been done. So, so that movement is taking place. And, a, and, a, and another element that I want to consider alongside that movement uh, is, is Christianity's actual and perceived role in the, the, the systems of oppression that have taken place. So in, 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 in conjunction with English common law and Enlightenment political philosophy, Judeo-Christian morality was a significant part of, and prominent part of, of American culture at the beginning and, and even still is today in a lot of ways. And oftentimes the moral code of Judeo-Christian understanding um, and a monumental amount of Pharisaism, okay, when I say Pharisaism, uh, I'm speaking to those people that Jesus often confronted that were using uh, moral standards from the word of God and moral standards that they created themselves to further oppress people. So there's, there, there was a use of the code and a lot of Pharisaism, which is um, really a desire to extend power and control others, uh, that happened throughout our country. And these were seen in double standards for men, especially in regard to, to sexual regulations, denying women voting, justifying slavery, gender roles in civic life, the overreach of law into the private lives of others, manifest destiny, which justified the, the wiping out of indigenous peoples. Um, and it's really hard to separate the historical realities uh, from the uh, ill-intended and incorrect uses of the Bible. Just as in, in, in the time of Ezekiel, there were people claiming to be on the side of God, people claiming to be using the word, um, and, and were using those things for their own selfish ends and for the hurting of others. And so we have these two realities, this growing movement of activism, of activism on behalf of historically oppressed minority groups, uh, and Christianity's perceived role in the system, right? The system. The system being this integrated group of, of institutions and ideas that have collectively oppressed minority groups, uh, not only in this country, but again throughout the world. And those other institutions are, are government, law enforcement, banks, education, real estate, uh, higher education, uh, you name it. It's a lot of, it, a lot of, of what makes America, America is being thrown into this pot of the system that has contributed to, to the oppression of peoples. So I think that we feel increased pressure as Christians, because of, of being, to some degree, seen as being a part of this historical system. And in regard to, and, and there's a couple spheres of how we are perceived and in truth have participated in the system, the system. Uh, we're going to look at we're going to look at at racism, race and racism, and we're going to look at at gender and sexuality. And so, I think we need to do this because we as Christians are going to find ourselves 
increasingly in marginalized, isolated, and disheartened positions, a lot like the righteous were at the time of Israel in Ezekiel's time. And, and, and the book of Titus gives us some pretty clear instruction about how do we are to conduct ourselves in this way. And we're not going to get into Titus. I just want to point out from chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Titus says this. While Paul is instructing Titus to communicate this to the churches he's working in. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may, not be, put to sh- may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And what we see in in the New Testament, what we see in in, in Jesus' teaching is that we are going to be enemies of people in the world. We need to live in such a way that doesn't give them an excuse to dishonor the word of God, to undermine Jesus' teaching, and to say things evil about us. And so that's, that's the goal. We have to look at the truth of our history, the truth of what has been done, the truth of God's word, and come to a place where we approach our culture uh, in, a, in a wise way. So first, racism. We have to acknowledge that not only have bad actors played on behalf of God and his word in the oppression of peoples of color in this country, we, all have, we also have to look at intentional things that Christians have done. And and I'm not going to detail any specific instances. I would recommend Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, that looks at uh, intentional efforts that well-respected Christians at the time and a lot of Christians that we would hold up now, what they did to engage in uh, systemic racism, discrimination against people on the basis of color, and to use a power that they had because they were in the majority. Again, to deny these things would be just to plaster up and paint the wall. The truth of these ill-intended and, and people that were thinking that they were sincere, the truth of it, of those things happening, doesn't make us here now presently guilty of those past actions, but it does put us in a place where we are responsible to to bring relief and alleviate uh, systemic wrongs that have been done in history. Now, I also want to point out that that the present conditions uh, are not only the consequence of systemic racism, but also are the consequences of individual actions. And so one of the real tensions that is going on in this debate and in this and in, this, and in our country, in this issue, uh, is, is the role of groups and systems and majorities and its effect on minorities, uh, and then what is the role and responsibility of individuals in that? And so there's not only a systemic responsibility, there is also individual responsibility, and this is not blaming the victim. Okay, victims are people that are acted upon adversely by somebody else, some other force, some other agent. They have no control over it, okay? A a poor person, regardless of their, of their gender or of their sexual orientation or of their, or their race or ethnicity or age or anything, a poor person harming another person and stealing their property is not a victim. Now, they may be a victim of some form of systemic effort that has caused them to be poor, but it wasn't their victim status that caused them to victimize and oppress others. 
Being a victim does not give license to victimize and oppress others. And this is, this is affirmed in, 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 in black scholars on both sides of the debate, uh, Glenn Lowry, uh, Michelle Alexander, Thomas Sowell, and others. There is a, a role in our society for systems and cultures that get developed and that need to be changed and corrected and reformed. There is a role for individual responsibility in our individual welfare and in society's welfare as a whole. And acknowledging that doesn't need to exclude the need to address the systemic problems. So we just can't blame the system. We just can't blame history. And I think that this emboldens us in several ways. First of all, we can be strengthened not to be cowered by the overwhelming weight of the guilt of the past, um, and that there is a possibility for improvement at, on an individual basis and for society as a whole. And this affirmed Jesus' teachings to not return evil for evil, uh, Jesus' teaching on the role of personal agency and responsibility in our own lives, and the role of, of personally knowing and understanding and submitting our lives to Jesus as individuals and the work that the Holy Spirit does in our, in, in our lives to, over, to help us overcome sin, and not just our own sin, but to experience freedom and peace and joy uh, over the sins that others have committed against us. But this is the promise of the gospel. The third thing I'm going to look at in this, in this sphere of racism is, is the role of Christian teaching and, and, and movements within Christianity to spearhead the efforts to end slavery and um, the treatment of slaves. And that's coming out of teaching that comes right out of the book of Genesis. All human beings are made in the image of God. And that theology creates um, an, an equal status that we are all in before God, which does not give us the right to oppress and mistreat others. And so it was Christ, Christian groups um, in Europe and in America that were strengthened and, and girded by this theology that led the movement to end what had been a, a global reality for thousands of years. Slavery was a, a global practice, and it wasn't just uh, white people enslaving black people. Robert Davis of Ohio State is, has been writing on this for some time, uh, but has shown that there were black Muslims in North Africa that owned white European Christians as slaves, up to 1.25 million people, at the same time that white Christians were enslaving black Africans uh, in North America. So this kind of thing has been going on. The oppression of peoples is not a white sin. It's not a black sin. It is a human tragedy. It is a human tragedy. And it is a human transgression against the doctrine of the image of God. But it has been Christians who have who led the global effort to eradicate that evil. Which again gives us strength to say, yeah, you know, we are guilty of a lot of sins. But there is also a strength within Christianity that propels people to overcome 
evils such as slavery and the oppression of minority groups. In the second sphere of gender and sexuality, Christians that are striving to follow Jesus Christ and obey his word, especially in this season, are increasingly tempted to go along with a lot of other Christian leaders, to go along with a lot of other Christian denominations, and certainly to go along with our culture in, in disregarding Jesus' teaching on, on gender and sexuality, believing those things to be uh, outdated, out, uh, unloving, misogynistic, and repressive. These teachings of Jesus to interpret that, them that way is wrong. It's not accurate. It's not, it's not textually consistent. Now, again, people have used these teachings incorrectly, claiming to be on the work, doing the work of God, claiming to be communicating the word of God. They have used these things to oppress women, to oppress people that are not heterosexual. We all know the stories, and it's true that there have been uh, Christians and people that have, in the name of Christ, have committed those sins. But that, those things were not Jesus' intent. They are intended to give freedom and joy. That is their intent. That is their intent. I was reading, just happened to come upon the review of a newly released memoir called Her. And I read a little bit of the book after seeing the, after reading the review, and it's called Her, and it, she tells a story. Uh, it's, it's a woman that, uh, that she has two children. Uh, she has a husband that keeps his money separate from her, so she pays most of the bills. Uh, one of the two children that she has is young enough, and she's still breastfeeding the child. Uh, she is, she's a professor at a university along with her husband. They're both professors at the, the, the uh, nearby university. They both came into their relationship with mountains of debt from, from school. Um, and she just, so the memoirs re relating all these things, she's given her story, and then she just, all of this takes place in the setting of her bathroom where she's waiting for the results of a pregnancy test. And she discovers that she, again, is pregnant, and she immediately at the same time, wants an abortion, but also wants to keep the child. She wants to work, and she wants to raise three children. Uh, her husband does nothing to, not only is he keeping his money separate, uh, he provides no help at home, and she describes a scenario where he's trying to figure out how to, to, to use the vacuum to vacuum the floor. So he's no help at home. And she's trying to get some perspective and some help from him in regard to what to do with this with this. Uh, this baby that's growing inside of her, she asks him about abortion, and he just replies, it's your body, it's your choice. And that was it. And after reading, I got the sense that this woman wasn't happy, but repressed, repressed by all of these, these things in her life that certainly could not be considered from a conservative perspective. See, following Jesus doesn't automatically relieve us from suffering. It's not going to relieve us from the pains of raising children. In fact, the scriptures say quite the opposite. Our sin is going to increase the challenges and difficulty of raising children. 
Uh, it's not going to automatically wipe away conflicts between husbands and wives. It's not going to automatically make all of our children amazingly obedient to the wish of their parents. That's not what Christianity offers. That's, what not, that's not what Jesus is offering in his teachings in regard to gender and sexuality. What Jesus does is he creates an ordered life that leads to the flourishing of individuals and families and the church, which is his, his family, and all of society. That's what God is doing. Husbands are called to lay down selfish and protracted adolescence and give their lives for the care of the family. Wives are called to unify their lives and callings along with their husbands, which again is the, the care and welfare of the family. Children are to obey parents because unity and peace within the context of a family is a good thing and leads to the flourishing of the family. And the, but it doesn't end there. And David Brooks has recently wrote an article in The Atlantic called The Failure of the Nuclear Family. And David Brooks is not an anti-family guy. What he's saying is that if we just see family as this isolated lone unit, we're missing the point, which is really the biblical teaching as well. The family does not exist for the welfare of itself. The, the, the family exists for the welfare of the church family. So that as a church family, we all can come together as people and support one another in various stages of life, at various uh, stages of wisdom and being able to counsel and support and give help, physical help, spiritual help, emotional help. So we as, a f as, a f as the family of God grow, the family is to serve and help the church family. And then the church family, in all of our unified strength, across the board, emotionally, spiritually, financially, uh, whatever. We as a church are instructed by Jesus Christ to then be a force of good in the world around us. The teachings of Jesus Christ order all of us to live for the benefit of others and not for the benefit of our individual selves, which runs in direct opposition to the American way. And we need to see that these teachings are gearing us toward that so that we can combat and be confident in, we can combat the false teachings that are coming against us, we can see the bigger picture behind the instructions of gender and sexuality in the New Testament. If we, if we contradict the teachings of Christ, just as Israel was contradicting the teachings of God at the time, if we continue to contradict the teachings of Jesus Christ, the wall of the church will crumble, and our effect in the world will increasingly get minimized and we'll see our nation crumble as well. But I think we can see that that's where things might be going as a nation and that if we hold to these teachings, we're going to feel increasingly marginalized and at times disheartened. But it's not at these moments that we are to pull away. Should we consider these people as our enemies? If we go back to the idea of what a conspiracy is, a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy theory is that we perceive a group of people to be our enemies uh, and we make actions against them to protect ourselves. I don't think we can perceive these people as our enemies. We may be perceived by them as enemies, but we are not to see these people as our enemies. 
Jesus says to love those and do good to those who harm you. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he explains what good is it if you're going to love somebody that in turn loves you? That's no sign of anything extraordinary in you as a person. Rather, if you, are to, if you really possess the love of God, it's going to draw you into, an, into a willingness and empower you with the ability to love those who are in opposition to you. And that's what then shows the true power of God. That's ultimately what Christ showed on the cross. He came to a world who was hostile to him, and he died for them, and that is the love of God, to bring us life, to save us from our sin, to promise and, and, and lay claim to a future kingdom that will bring all of the world into a place of peace and joy and harmony. So we've got to hold on to Jesus' teachings. We've got to resist being angry and feeling as if the world is our enemy and that we need to defend ourselves against them. We need to see that, yes, indeed, the world's opposed to us. But we have a teaching and a power present in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit in us that gives us the ability to live in such a way that fulfills what Titus said. Live this way so that the word of God would not be dishonored. Live this way so that your enemies would not have anything bad to say about you. And live this way so that it makes the teachings of Jesus Christ attractive. That's our calling. And that's what the teachings will do. That's what Jesus Christ will do in us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your teachings and we thank you that they can indeed make us a strong wall, not one that just looks good. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength to not just appease our culture uh, in order for our own material prosperity. God, we don't know what the future holds for this nation. We know you've called us to a very clear purpose, and we pray, God, for the strength to endure what may come. Help us, God, to hold on to your word and to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.